welcome to Downsizing Your Home and Life radio show, where it's all about finding ways to a clear path to stress-free downsizing in order for you to live your best life. Each week, we will discuss where to begin, how to select where to live, the best methods to sort and monetize your stuff, as well as the proper steps to valuing and listing your home in order for you to fast forward and start living your new life. Now, here is your host, Ann Nori, the downsizing coach, an experienced, award-winning realtor, auctioneer, and personal property appraiser, bringing you much-needed information to help you navigate the steps of becoming financially whole as you successfully downsize your home and life. Welcome, everyone, to our episode today. We have our wonderful guest here, Anthony Alosi, with First American Exchange Company. And we're going to be talking about a very, very important subject of 1031 exchanges. Anthony, welcome to our downsizing show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And good to be here. Thank you so much. Well, Anthony, um, I'm going to share with everyone why your information, um, I've been on several of your um, meetings, and I've enjoyed learning immensely from you. And um, one of my biggest takeaways is that First American Exchange Company is part of uh, First American Title, correct me with with the right insurance company which is the largest insurance company in the country. Um, Talk to us about 1031 exchanges quickly, what it is, and then uh, we'll start to talk about um, some of the really important elements you have to share with us. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, what what an exchange is, of course, is it's a program specifically designed for investors that allows them to exchange uh, real estate and defer capital gains tax on the sale of that property. So, They are exchanging one property for another or multiple properties for other properties. Um, 1031 falls under the IRC section code. Uh, So it is a federal tax code, which allows them to exchange um, over and through state lines. It's not reserved for one specific state. So basically, it's for when we have clients that have a home, they might have purchased their home. Um, prior to raising their children, they might have purchased a property at uh, 500000 And uh, now that we, 25, 30 years later, it might be worth $2 million, right? So can you break down for us a little bit of what that scenario might look like? Typically, that difference between the purchase price and what the, they sold for um, would be considered taxable, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, again, as we'll kind of dive more into the subject here, you'll see that 1031 is a has a large spectrum or array of property types that are available. As I said just a moment ago, it's really geared for investors. So and we talk about, you know, who's eligible for an exchange. It's really anybody that owns property held for productive use in a trade or business or held for investment. So that does spread the gamut for, you know, like you said, investment property, you know, multifamily apartments. Mm-hmm retail, office, you know, many different property types will fit under the spectrum for 1031 exchange. And when, you know, someone becomes, you know, starts thinking about the process, yes, they look at their gain, right? How much gain they have in the property. And gain is kind of, you know, roughly calculated by what you paid for it. Um, 
minus what you're selling it for today. And it doesn't matter if you've held it for 10 years or 20 years or two years, you know, properties have gained depending on what, you know, geographic area you're located in. Some may have more or less. There are other factors that determine gain like uh, depreciation and um, capital improvements. Um, those factor in as well too. But when we look at kind of our typical exchange client, um, they are, you know, they bought a property five years ago. It's worth more today. And the way for them to defer payment of capital gains tax is to enter into an exchange. And by doing so, they defer that capital gains tax payment until some point in the future. So it's basically taking the sale proceeds, putting it on hold, not paying taxes on it, and then reinvesting it and kicking the can down as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, and not basically only the sales by thing. reinvesting. That's right. Yeah. And, and really just kind of keep in mind too, you know, why people look to defer or why they look to exchange, you know, the old adage for 1031 and is defer, 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 then die. Right. I mean, that's kind of the joking, you know, little tongue in cheek here, but that's why people look to do an exchange, right? They want to keep that deferral going. And the beauty of 1031 is they can, as long as they keep the exchange process going. And, you know, we kind of set a distinction between what's a sale and what's an exchange. A sale is I'm cashing out, I'm moving on, I'm going to take my proceeds and do what I want with it. And exchanges, I've got to buy something else, another piece of what we call like-kind real estate. Again, like-kind is now really defined as anything held for investment, but people can exchange into like-kind real estate and defer the payment of capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. And when we look at what capital gains tax can be, how it's calculated, it's going to differ for every individual. A lot of it's based on their income and their level of income and their tax rate, but we have federal tax. Some states have state tax. Some people are going to be subject to the ADA, the Affordable Care Act tax that we still have. Uh, and some people, a lot of people that depreciate the property are subject to the recapture, the depreciation, depreciation recapture as well too. So there are, in, in some circumstances, four different, what I call buckets of tax that are available for them to you know, reduce their, uh, their sale proceeds by. So Absolutely. by doing an exchange, it allows you to roll that over into the next property and defer the capital gains tax. And deferred. So can you talk to us, um, before we get down this rabbit hole, one of the most important elements I wanted to share with individuals, which I didn't know until I learned it from you a little while back is that it, many exchange companies, they're, they're, it's not a mandated, there is no real requirement to have any licenses, permits, or, you know, any sort of special licensing, even whether it's financial advisors, realtors, you know, as an auctioneer, right? We have multiple licenses. I was shocked to hear that an 1031 exchange company is not held uh, by any sort of governing body where they have to hold any licenses. So talk to us about how individuals can safeguard themselves and how working with a top tier firm and having that, you know, surety and, and security is critically important. Sure. And it's a great point, Anne. And I, I, I mention it every time I, I speak. And um, it's ironic almost when you when you think about it, um, where, you know, we are kind of being tasked with upholding a tax code within the IRC tax code, yet exchange companies, at least on a federal level, there are a handful of states and really a small handful of states that have mm -hmm. some state regulations. But for the most part, most states and the federal on a federal level, exchange companies are not regulated at all, right? There's no governing body that you know, requires any of us to be licensed. So again, without you know, the fear of providing a sh shameless plug here for First American, I'm part of First American Title Insurance Company, which is um, highly regulated. And again, for us, 
we march to the same order that the title insurance company does on, on, on 1031 transactions. So how do you safeguard? You, you first ask, right? Who's doing my exchange? What is the entity that is, is handling the 1031 transaction? And you want to make sure that they have some financial strength and security behind them. You know, without, again, going into much detail on, you know, First American, we're around, we've been around 130 plus years. They're traded on the New York Stock Exchange. They're publicly held. Again, as I mentioned, they are uh, audited uh, on a regular basis and they are held to a much higher standard uh, by the Department of Insurance. Um, so for us, we follow their lead and that's how we kind of differentiate ourselves from our competitors. Um, we provide safety critical. and security of the exchange dollars. Critical, critical, uh, critical, critically important because uh, I know that we have you know end users, clients listening. We have agents, we have professionals listening. And it's one of the biggest takeaways from the episode whether individuals become uh, further knowledgeable about the way it, an exchange can unravel and the rules and regulations, but the importance of conducting the due diligence on the firm or individual that uh, we make recommendations to clients to, right? It's important Absolutely. to know um, because in reality, if there's an $8 million, you know, exchange, somebody sells a shopping center and, you know, they have 180 days to make a decision or determination to close on that. You want to make sure that those funds are being <clears throat> held by the right resource that has the proper financial backing. So for, for um, sure. Yeah. And let me yeah. just jump in real quick. Remember in an exchange transaction, you have a gap generally between the sale of the relinquished property, that shopping center that you just sold, and the ultimate purchase, whatever that may be, that $8 million gets held by the exchange company. Exactly. So the, the client ha can have any access to those funds. Exactly. So it's critically important. So let's talk to us about the timeline. From sure. the moment there's a contract or from the moment of sale, what are the important dates? When do they come into play? And some terminology that we can kick this off with. Yeah, great. And, and that's kind of the critical, you know, the nitty gritty of an exchange is what's the big challenge that's faced with people doing 1031 today? And yeah, yeah. it's generally the time frame, right? From start to finish, an exchange can, no, can, can last no longer than 180 calendar days, right? Mm -hmm. And the clock is triggered by the close of the transaction, the close of escrow, um, or the settlement of the relinquished property. When the ownership transfers from the seller, the exchanger to the buyer, the clock starts ticking. You've got 180 calendar days to complete the exchange. Now, big picture, 180 days is roughly six months, but it's specifically it goes by like, days. Believe me, it goes by like that. It does so go I'm by going like to that. break it down as an example with that shopping center. So if we had a client and they sold the shopping center, uh, they've had the shopping center for, let's say, 30 years in the family business. Dad purchased the shopping center for $1.8 million. They received a check for $8 million. They decided they don't want to, uh, you know, have pay taxes on that yet. So what they would like to do is reinvest the full $8 million has to mm -hmm. be reinvested. Correct. So what the option for them is, is to work with an organization like yours that can hold the entire $8 million in, as, in an account, right? And then they have from the date that they receive the money and close to the next transaction closing 180 days. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Right, it, just to be clear and specific, 
the clock starts ticking the day of escrow, the day the escrow the, closes. The not day necessarily the day closed. we receive the funds. Sometimes there's a okay. gap. You know, if they close on a Friday, we, we might not get the money till Monday, whatever. But the settlement date is the date that triggers the time clock. 180 days to complete. And again, big picture, that's at least the easier of the two dates to work with. And the challenge is of those 180 days, the first 45 days the exactly 45 is days. that identification yeah. period. And that replacement property or properties must be identified within that 45 day window. So um, so that within 45 days of closing and in order to exercise your deal, you need to be able to identify the property or at least three options that you think are you're going to be proceeding forward with in purchasing. And that is done per the IRS rules and requirements and, and in order to comply with, with, um, with the requirements, right? Yes. And, and, and just, again, the three property rule is really one of actually three distinct and separate identification rules. There are two okay. other ones that the taxpayer, the exchanger can utilize as well. The most common is that three property rule. And on or before day 45, they must identify and they can identify up to three properties. But it, you gave a great example. If they're selling a shopping center for $8 million, they might look to utilizing another rule. The other rule that's very popular too is called the 200% of value rule. And the 200% of value rule allows them to identify 200%, twice the value of what they just disposed of. So when you're $8 million shopping center scenario where they dispose of an $8 million asset, they can identify... $16 million with the replacement property and acquire any combination of the properties they identified. So under the 200% rule, they are not capped on the number of properties they can identify. I would say they can identify more than three. They are capped on the value. On the three property rule, the kind of requirements are this, this exact opposite. They're capped on the number for three, but they're mm -hmm. not capped on value. So they can identify a $10 million property, a $50 million property, and a $32 million property. They can identify three without regard to value. They use the 200% rule. It's any amount of properties, but the aggregate can't be more than 200%. So a lot of it's going to depend on what their strategy is going forward. Do they want to diversify? Do they want to buy one property greater than what they sold and, and lever, lever themselves up? A lot of it, the identification rules are going to depend on exactly what they want to do going forward. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible if uh, for estate planning purposes and for distribution of wealth to the children and grandchildren and so forth, is it possible in the scenario of the $8 million shopping center, dad had one property, mom and dad, they sold that asset, they take the $8 million, can they purchase um, four $2 million properties? Absolutely. You bet. Absolutely. For sure. There the we the go. two best strategies for an exchange and diversification and right. consolidation. And consolidation. Yep. So this is one great. of the biggest strategies that we take to our clients and it's way of distribution of wealth, building equity for, uh, you know, passing, creating generational wealth. This is an excellent way of doing so. Um, I always talk about as the downsizing coach, right? We hear a lot of aftermath stories. So my wish for clients is to have those conversations early on and before anything happens or, uh, you know, uh, to a family member to see how to give them the option to, you know, distribute the wealth 
amongst the children and grandchildren in advance. And using the strategy of a 1031 exchange is wonderful, it's brilliant, and there's lots of other steps and elements into it. But this is one strategy that works very well in being able to defer the taxes. Again, take that initial $2 million investment that is now worth $8 million, mm -hmm. and then redistribute it and buy four $2 million properties, a one $8 million property, or as you said, the 200% rule and step up and be able to buy uh, and bring cash to the table, use that sure. $8 million, use additional cash and reinvest into a larger property. Yeah. And, and again, I don't know if I made it, uh, came up with it years ago, but I call an exchange a preservation of wealth. So it's very Absolutely. similar to what you're referring to. It's a way yes. for an exchanger to preserve the wealth, because if you just did a sale and you had to cut 30% off your proceeds to pay capital gains tax, that reduces your wealth. So the way an exchange works is it allows you to defer that gain into the next property and beyond and keep exchanging. And then upon your death, the heirs get the stepped up basis and the new replacement properties and mm -hmm. the gain gets washed away. So that's the way to preserve the wealth. And that's the strategy going forward for sure. And that creates the generational wealth that you've been talking about. So can you break that down in the $8 million example for us with the numbers of what that might look like? Well, As you yeah. just said, so sure. how, dad, yeah. how much would he pay in taxes roughly on the 8 million? Well, you know, I kind of use 30% as my yeah. guide a, a lot of times, but now, I, you know, depending on what state you're in, and California is the state that I do a lot of business in, and it has, you know, state tax where some states don't. So capital gains tax does vary from state to state, but I just kind of use that as a guide. So again, if they bought, let's just use nice round numbers, and they bought the property originally for $2 million, and now they're selling it for eight. So let's call it $6 million a gain times 30%. That's right. a big number, right? That's a huge 1. number. 8, 1. 8, yeah, $1.8 million of capital gains tax. You know, that gets deferred into the new property that allows them to utilize that million eight for additional assets to be purchased. And let's right. say they decide to use the 200% rule because they do have, you know, four children or five children and they want to buy assets. The other great thing about diversification is you're not tied to one property type, right? Mm -hmm. You can buy multiple properties that are residential in some states that are uh, commercial, you can buy a multifamily property in other states. So you can take your eggs out of one basket and put them into different baskets as well, too. Uh, then that that deferral of gain keeps going, right? So they complete their exchange. I've now bought you know $9 million of replacement property. A year from now, two years from now, five years from now, they can sell one of the assets and exchange that into something else. You know, They can sell another asset 10 years from now and exchange that into something else. So it really broadens or expands their, their vision as to how they want to you know, move forward. In terms but of Anthony, tax saving, yeah. But Anthony, on in the example that you were sharing, just to finish your mathematical equation for our listeners, mm -hmm. yeah, so sure. so the, obviously one hundred and eighty thousand you said in taxes, right? Um, it's no about two hundred forty thousand in taxes would be uh, saved or deferred, right? And um, with that, um, I no, lost no, my it, train it's of a, mil a million. It's a million. I apologize. Energy. I a million eight. A million if they had, eight yeah, deferred, if they had six right? million dollars a gain, and again, I'm using thirty percent as the tax rate. Yes, thirty percent as the tax rate. So, what happens? Um, one, oh, I wanted to talk about something that I thought was really interesting, and that is um, if you were to sell a commercial piece of property, all right, and the fact that you can reinvest that and buy land as well, mm -hmm. is that for a like for a like? 
Yeah, the like-kind requirement has become very broad now. I mean, it used to be very specific, property-specific, but that kind of dates 1031 back until the, the, the 80s. Right. Um, 1991, things really kind of, we saw the shape and form that we have today, which is mm-hmm. more of the deferred exchange process. And the like-kind uh, term was kind of redefined to mean anything that's held for investment. So again, mixing and matching property types totally okay in. So selling commercial, buying a residential property, buying multifamily, buying raw land, okay. I mean, the one caveat I would say for someone that's going from commercial property that's Mm -hmm. developed and you're depreciating to raw land that you really can't depreciate is that recapture component that we spoke about a few minutes ago. And that might be a factor when uh, something that you wouldn't be able to defer into the new property. But if you sold a $2 million building and bought $6 million of raw land, it's a valid exchange and you can defer the capital gains tax, you bet. Excellent, excellent information. Again, there are so many layers to this onion, but as we start yeah. to unravel the onion, it's incredibly fascinating and it's uh, it, it it's an important way um, to preserve that generational wealth and Agreed. to keep it moving forward. Um, so talk to us about... Um, with what happens if the property is not identified within 45 days? Well, that's unfortunately the, the the downside is if you can't identify a property within 45 days, then your exchange fails and the money gets returned to you, you know, on or around the 46th day. And you end up, you know, paying Uncle, Uncle Sam and any state tax mm-hmm. that might be due on the property. There's really no way to kind of retroactive an exchange or identify after the 45 day deadline. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to us about boot? Sure. Boot is basically the distinction or the difference, the delta between what you've sold and what you've purchased. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, if you can remember anything about, you know, my discussion about 1031 exchange, it's remember in order to be fully tax deferred, you need to buy something equal or greater in value and equal or greater in equity to what you're selling. So we'll use our example again. You sell for $8 million and you buy something for $7 million, that million dollar difference, that's the boot. And that's what you generally pay tax on. Boot is generally taxable. And mm-hmm. like I said, it's the delta between the relinquished value the and the relinquished value. That's right. The difference between the two. Excellent. Correct. So again, a recap, 180 days and identify your properties within 45 days. Yeah. And another important element, I think that um, as, as agents get into this or sellers start to, to look at this, it's very important. Something that we always advise and when we work with clients is as soon as the decision is made to potentially exercise a 1031 prior to even listing the property, prior to even going, you know, putting the property on the market, we always start to look for the replacement property in order to be, and I think that's an important secret to the sauce. So many people run into hurdles and issues because they wait until they're the week of closing. And then they're like, okay, what's on the market now? Where do we want to be? And again, they can be anywhere. You know, they're not restricted to a local region. They can invest anywhere, right? That's right. Right. But it's important for everyone to take into consideration that they should start their search, their due diligence. They might consider six properties, eight properties. But as they get closer to that window of closing and as they approach and that clock is ticking, 
the biggest takeaway from Anthony being here and my words of wisdom and years of um, seeing clients deal with this and working with clients is for you to start the navigation process as early as possible and to have a better understanding of what you would like that replacement to potentially look like so that you don't have an issue of identifying your properties within those 45 days. That's exactly right, Anne. I mean, I could not set it any better. And that's, you know, the takeaway really is, especially for, you know, real estate agents and brokers and, and, and the client, the investor as well too, start early, right? Because that once that clock starts ticking, it does not stop. And you you don't have any means to alter those deadlines or those timeframes. So you're right. You can be under contract for both properties at the same time. You can be in escrow at the same time for the sale and the purchase, the replacement, the relinquish. Eliminate the timeframes if possible. Close mm -hmm. the relinquish on a Monday and the replacement property the, the following Tuesday and be done with the, the time frame. So Makes for sense. sure. Right. Yeah. Or another strategy could be if you can enter into a contract, right, on a potential property you want to purchase and put in there a contingency that you have to close your other property in order to be able to make the purchase of the new property. And of course, that's an excellent strategy as well that um, takes some of the burden and the stress off of trying to negotiate something subsequently and then you've got something locked and loaded and ready to go. Absolutely. Or as the seller on the relinquished property, build in an extension if that need, need be happened, right? So you accept the buyer's terms, but you know, build in some 30-day or two 30-day extensions until you can find your replacement property as well too, kind of similar to the contingency on the replacement side. So yeah, those That's are all awesome. great strategies. But really, I mean, I think the takeaway is planning, right? Planning. Far too many people are calling saying, well, I just closed, now what? <laughs> and they don't have exactly. a plan in place. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to encourage you, educate you, get these morsels to you Definitely. so that you can be prepared so you can hold on to the hard-earned equity that you have created and built over the last many years. Talk right. to us about how does seller financing fall into this? Yeah, seller financing, we're, we're definitely seeing more of it these days. And because interest rates are higher, right, from your traditional lender mm -hmm. and seller financing is an option for an exchange. It's, you know, not the best pairing, if you will. There are, be there are definitely better options for the exchanger, the seller that needs to offer the financing, but it can be done. Right. I mean, the, the snafu or the challenge is that the exchanger can do one of two things, right? The obvious way to go would be to not offer seller financing, rather the seller act as their own lender. And meaning they bring in the funds instead of using the funds from the proceeds, okay? So if you're selling the $8 million property and the buyer says, I need, you know, I need a loan for 4 million because I've got 4 million to put down, the seller, rather than take the money from his sale proceeds, if he does that, that's, that's taxable boot. That reduces the amount of his exchange by $4 million. If he can't, if he doesn't want to pay the tax on that, he can pull money from his personal account, bring the $4 million into the closing, and that way all $8 million comes into the exchange account. That's <laughs> the best way to go about that. The other way to do it would be close the deal, have the exchange company hold on to the note, and then try to convert it into cash during their exchange period. That, that can be very challenging to do. They most likely have to look for a you know, a buyer on the secondary market or the private money market to right. try to buy that. And generally that loan would probably be purchased at a discount. 
So mm-hmm. let's say the $4 million note now is worth you know, $3.2 million. That $3.2 million gets wired in the exchange account. Now they've got $7.2 million, the original four plus the 3.2, and they can take and defer all of that, but they're still going to have some boot on their hand for the amount of the discount. So as I said, seller financing and 1031 exchange are not a great pairing. A lot mm-hmm. of people look at doing a seller carryback like it's a way to delay the payment of capital gains tax as the, opposed to a true deferral. And by that, I mean, if you do a seller carryback and you're holding the note and you're getting payments, and let's say they're interest only, well, you don't pay any capital gains tax till you receive the principal. So maybe you're kicking the can down the road five or 10 years or whenever the, the balloon payment or the principal payment is due. So those are types of things that people look at when we talk about seller financing. Very, very useful information. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are the property requirements that qualify for the 1031 exchange? Yeah, I mean, it, again, very broad. The requirements for a property are held for productive use in a trade or business or held for investment. Those mm-hmm. are the property types. And that that and really just opens up the spectrum. The gamut for 1031 properties is anything that fits that need. You've got owner users that own commercial and industrial properties, retail properties, office buildings. Mm-hmm. You've got investors that own multifamily, single family, raw land. I mean, they, they all qualify for 1031 treatment. And I said, as I said earlier, mixing and matching different property types is totally okay. So we see that all the time. You know, people that want to get out of, you know, holding raw land or farmland or timberland mm-hmm. that might not produce the same amount of income that a multifamily property or a commercial property or a triple net lease property w- would provide. So that's what's happened. And that's the great part of an exchange is you're not stuck and tied to one specific property type. What if a client wanted to take a the funds and purchase some sort of a second or vacation home, what would it look like in that particular scenario? Yeah, that, that gets a little trickier, right? Because when we talk about how you define a vacation home or second home, um, it really doesn't fit perfectly into the, you know, the mold of 1031 exchange because, you know, you really, it's hard to define that as a property held for investment. So when we look at a vacation home or second home, I tell people, look, number one, you know, you should probably get your tax advisor to, you know, provide some guidance here on this. The rule of thumb for that says that you can occupy that property 14 days or less out of the year or a total of 10% of the amount of time you've held it for investment. So when we look at that, I tell people, look, especially today, and when we have VRBO and Airbnb and all these vacation rental websites, you know, if it's a true uh, vacation home where mm-hmm. you're you're the only one using it, that's probably not going to fit for an exchange. If it's this hybrid thing where let's say you have a place at the beach or a place in the mountains or you like to ski and you know you go to Colorado and you're you're you've got a cabin there and you're there for a short period of time, but the rest of the time it's with a management company, it's on Airbnb, it's on VRBO, and you're right. generating some income from it, you're probably going to be okay. I tell people limited personal use. That's kind of the distinction. But if you've got the true second home scenario where they're on the west coast for six months and the east coast for six months that's probably not going to fit for an exchange and i tell people be careful if you're going to do a 1031 on that type of property because even if that's the current use Mm -hmm. remember that new use has to be again it has to be held for investment so you have to then buy the new property with intent to to hold it for investment if you're going to do the same thing if you get audited you need to make sure that you can explain to an auditor how this you know meets the smell test for 1031 right Right. Um, yes. So what about the primary residence exclusions? Yeah. The- yeah. And that's something that people, you know, sometimes they get kind of mixed up with 1031 exchange. So 
when we talk about your personal residence or your primary residence, as Anne just mentioned, it's an exclusion, right? You can literally put money in your pocket and walk away and have no requirement to reinvest. The exclusion says if you're eligible and you've occupied the property for any two of the last five years, you can exclude $250,000 of gain if you're a single person or $500,000 of gain if you're a married couple filing jointly. Mm -hmm. So the exclusion has no requirement to reinvest, right? You bought your house for $500,000. You're now selling it for a million bucks. You're a married couple. You put the $500,000 of gain in your pocket. You walk away and you live happily ever after. An exchange is different in so much as that it's a true deferral. You've got a number one exchange for something. You have to reinvest back into real estate and you defer that gain to some point in the future. So the two are you know, kind of dramatically different because personal residence is only for the property that you occupy. 1031 exchange can be for any property that you hold for investment purposes. For investment purposes. And and I the biggest wealth building strategy out there, right, is what we were just talking about, especially for homeowners. Let's let's nail that one in. Every two years, you can have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in real estate gains tax That's right. free. That's right. Sell that it's not a one-time exemption. It's, it's, it's a, not it's, a one-time. Yes. That's correct. Yep. So for those that truly want to build wealth, this is an excellent strategy for you to buy real estate for a married couple up to 500000 for a single individual up to 250000 sell a property every two to three years, take that equity, and uh, it, you can hold on to a tax-free, whether you choose to buy something else or not. It's a gift yeah. from the IRS. You just got to pick the right market. And I mean, you got to know exactly where to buy that house to, to flip it every couple of years and make it. It's, it's been a good couple of years, right? For that. It has been. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've kind of talked about like kind of properties, but if you can just re-clarify now that everyone's further into our conversation, I would appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, like kind simply is defined as anything held for productive use in a trade or business or anything held for investment. Those two properties kind of fit together in the same mold. And again, mixing and matching outside or into different property types is totally okay. So when we look at the gamut for 1031 property, we've got, you know, on the low side, you know, on the one side, you know, a, a single residential rental property um, owned by, you know, Joe Smith. And on right. the other side of the spectrum, we have an office tower in Manhattan that's worth, you know, $1.5 billion. And that's the entire, you know, that's the spread for 1031 exchange. So anybody on that on that spectrum can do an exchange. Um, individuals can do an exchange. A married couple can do an exchange. Uh, trustee, a, a family living trust can do an exchange. An irrevocable trust can do an exchange. LLC, partnership, corporation, they can all do 1031 exchanges. And the one key for 1031 is that you keep that vesting, but maybe more specifically, you keep that taxpayer consistent. So if the taxpayer is a partnership that owns the relinquished property, that same partnership's got to buy into the new replacement property. But different entities, they all are eligible for 1031 treatment. That is and, phenomenal. And, phenomenal. And one last point, what we just talked about, I forgot to mention, we talk about the primary residence exclusion. Yes. You're capped at 500000 Right. With 1031 exchange, there's no cap. There's no cap. Right. There's no cap. You can defer 500000 or $500 million. So again, if you sell a commercial property, you can buy industrial, you can buy land, you can buy a strip center, you can buy an office building, residential, multifamily, condos, whatever it is, that is a magic, magic sauce. That's for right. It, is magic sauce. Yeah. it really is. It really yeah. is. Um, 
So let's talk about um, the delayed deadlines. Again, we talked about 45 days to identify the properties. You have to close within 180 days. And that was from escrow to escrow. Is that correct? That's right. Correct. Uh huh. Yeah. And just to, again, you know, and no extensions, at, <laughs> no extensions. Um, on the, there's a little bit of a caveat right now because some states recently have received some disaster relief. Um, so check with your state to see if you're eligible for that. But yes, we did get some disaster relief because of the extensive rains and flooding that we had in certain states, um, California actually being one of them. So we did see some some mm. relief. But generally speaking, yeah, barring a presidentially de declared disaster, and they're not going to get any extensions to any of those time deadlines. And when we look at the 180 day, I always tell people, remember, it's 180 calendar days. If your deadline for day 180 falls on a Sunday or a Saturday, or let's say it falls on Memorial Day or Labor Day or Monday, you're going to lose time and you're going to have to close on the previous Friday. You cannot close a transaction on a weekend, right? You have to close on, on a business day. So you'd actually, you don't get the extra day to roll over you're going to get less than 180 days. You might get 177 days, depending on when that day is. So it's imperative that you know what your deadlines are and that you're, you know, you as a real estate agent or broker, you as the investor, you know what those deadlines are that you can comply and adhere to them. Yeah. Um, and I think, we, again, just to reiterate, again, some of what we just talked about, the identification requirements, if you can, now that it's kind of starting, the pieces of yeah. the puzzle are coming together for our listeners. So if you can um, reshare the identification requirements. Sure. Yeah. I mean, let's start with the, the easy one. The easy one is the three property rule. And the three property rule answers you can identify any three properties, regardless of value. So property A, B, and C. And of those three properties, you can acquire one of them, two of them, or all three of them, whichever you desire. And you want to, obviously you want to satisfy your exchange requirement. What's the exchange requirement? Buying something equal or greater in value and equal or greater in equity to what you're selling. 75% mm -hmm. of the transactions I see, they utilize the three property rule. Right. The other rule, kind of the fallback or the, the, the next rule is the 200% of value rule. And the 200% of value rule says you can identify and ultimately acquire more than three properties. So you can identify as many as you want, but you're capped on value. And the cap is 200% or twice the value of what you sold. Now, if you sold a small little single family rental property for 300,000, the 200% rule is going to allow you to only identify $600,000 of real estate. Probably not the best rule for you, um, so most people kind of by default would then look to the three property rule. If you sold an $8 million shopping center, the 200% rule says you can identify $16 million of property. So definitely the larger the property, the more the 200% rule does come into play. And again, ultimately, and at the end of the day, it really depends on the client strategy as to what they are, are wanting to do. Right. Are they looking to diversify? Are they looking to consolidate? You know, again, a lot of times in, you know, it's called a residential transaction. Right. They're looking to just buy one bigger property, right? Yes. They're selling something for 700,000. They're going to buy something for a million. So the three property rule works really good for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you and, know. And there is one rule that I, that I, I, I never talk about. It, it's there. It's available. I've been at this 27 years and I've probably seen it work successfully twice. So it's really not worth mentioning, but since we're here, it. <laughs> mention it. it's called the 95% exception. And the 95% exception says 
you can identify as many properties as you want, but you have to acquire 95% of the value of what you identified. So it really comes into possibly acquiring partial value of properties, fractional values of properties, or in the two transactions that I saw was successful, they acquired, they identified seven properties and acquired all seven. So they acquired 100% of what they identified. The 95 rule says 95, you must acquire 95% or more. They ended up acquiring 100%. But if they weren't able to acquire one of those seven properties, it would have failed because their identification would have failed. So it's a really tough rule to manipulate and to utilize. Most people find some way to use the 200% or the three property rule. And and not to go back to, you know, the discussion that we had about the importance of who you use and how knowledgeable, Anthony, you are with all of the exceptions, the possibilities, right? It's critically important for our listeners to understand that, you know, there are title companies all over they're starting to find branches and opening these 1031 exchanges Mm -hmm. and you know there's a lot going on with your options that are out there but the biggest takeaway and that's critically important that i want all of our listeners to have is two things one work with a seasoned professional and make sure that your money is protected for those 180 days with a well-versed financially backed organization Um, because there are so many you know turns and possibilities and options that you want to make sure that you've done your due diligence and that you have somebody holding your hand you know with yourself and your professional um, realtor uh, broker that's working with you you want to make sure that you are best representative with somebody who understands all of the many different layers of this onion and again, you, you said it so so well. I mean, again, when we think about you know someone you know the exchanger, the investor doing a transaction, see, he's got a team of people that need to help him. I mean, we yeah, for sure, we're one of his team members, and we do know that we have to do some handholding for people. But really, he should have competent legal and tax advice. He should have a competent real estate agent or broker. He should have a competent escrow or title person handling his closing, and us for sure. They all help contribute to that. And you know, again. I'm a one-trick pony, right? I know a lot about one subject, and that's 1031. Outside of that, I, 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 that's not my expertise. And I would make sure that they know, hey, you know, you need to seek guidance on this from your expert here. Let me help you with your exchange. That's what I can do. Anthony, if I was to say, and, and I'm shocked that I, um, how many times I've had conversations with clients, they've gone back to their accountant or CPA, and the CPA or accountant told them, absolutely not possible. (laughs) It's not an option. So another layer to this onion, the professionals that you have, whether it's your attorney, whether it's your CPA, if they have not sometimes ran into a scenario and it's not something that they're dealing with all the time, just because they don't know doesn't necessarily mean that it's not possible. So you want to make sure you want to make sure that you check or double check the advice. And that's why where, you know, I pick up the phone and I connect clients to individuals like yourself when they hear back that my attorney said it's not possible. My CPA said it's not possible. My children are professionals and they're telling me it's not possible, right? So you're going to have pushback 
especially when it comes to 1031 exchanges, whether it's in regards to the type of property, whether it's in regards to value, whether it's timeline, I mean, all of the different layers we've discussed, there might be somebody that tells you that it's not possible. Again, we're here to encourage you to have more than one conversation, to bring individuals that are incredibly seasoned and verify the information that you're being told. Because again, the consequences can be significant if a misstep or, you know, is taken. If you had a particular vision, you know, if you had the intention of making an exchange happen and there was an error in your timeline and it didn't happen or vice versa. So we just want you to um, be well-versed and know that there are individuals to guide you and your other team members in, in your decision-making process. Oh, and for sure. I totally agree. And I've got stacks of, of literature and information and rulings and filings and you name it. If a CPA says that can't be done, I'm the first person to say, no, 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 no. Let me send you some information and you take a look at it. Um, because, you know, again, there are some nuances per state. Um, but uh, when we talk about 1031, it's it's federal. So, I mean, again, it, it does spread the gamut for that or does across state lines. So I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's very nuanced, right? I mean, Mm-hmm. Of the hundreds and millions of transactions that are done in the real estate world, a small percentage of them are exchanges, right? I mean, you know, maybe 10 to 20% are 1031 transactions. So not every not every transaction in exchange and, you know, CPA might not see it on a daily basis. Absolutely. We're considered the experts and, you know, we realize, you know, our job is to kind of help, you know, the customer complete their transaction successfully. So, you know, we want to make sure they have the right team together because our, our role is going to be very limited in what we can do for them. But after 27 years, you'll learn a couple of things, you know, here or there, you know, yeah. pitfalls to avoid, obstacles to kind of overcome and things like that. Absolutely. Um, priceless information for, for what you have, Anthony, and for what you bring to clients. I think it's it's priceless. Um, and let's talk about the pitfalls and things for uh, our investors or for those considering the 1031 to take into consideration. And I would ask that you take notes, guys, or rewind and replay, because this is important stuff. Yeah, I mean, number one, first and foremost, and we've kind of talked about it a couple of times now, is making sure you know who you're dealing with, right? Who is your exchange company and what can they offer you? Financial strength and security. Um, they, you know, obviously documentation is important, of course, in an exchange and making sure that the documents are, you know, have been reviewed and, and you know, can pass the, the smell test for 1031 and pass audit, those types of things. I mean, you know, when you're dealing with a company the size of First American, those things are checked and rechecked and, and obviously, you know, have passed audit after audit after audit. So documentation is important with an exchange. Um, who's protecting your funds, as we talked about as well, too. You know, the, the funny thing is, is that's one question, believe it or not, people don't ask, no, Where, where's don't. my money going? Mm-hmm. Where's that $8 million going? And especially today, in light of what we've seen as of late in the last six weeks or so, mm-hmm. you know, people still aren't asking who's, who's backing their funds. I think there's a perception out there that First American's holding your money, right? The exchange company's holding it. And we are, but we're holding it at a bank, just like anybody else. We're setting up se- separate segregated bank accounts, um, for us, they're they're all separate from each other, right? Separate individual bank account for all every one of our clients. So protecting the funds is really can you, Anthony. Can you that that I, that's a great point because um, not a lot of organizations don't necessarily do that, right? I know you guys open a specific fund in the name of the client versus yeah, the general escrow fund, which is very important 
for people to understand and to take notes on and to ask those questions. Most definitely, yeah. And and actually, just without getting you know caught up in semantics, we open a bank account, right? There's no yes. fund. There's no like any risk to principal. It's not like a mutual fund or money market or anything like that for us. First Americans, you know, kind of an old traditional company that you know likes being to be conservative, especially with clients' funds. So for us, we're opening a bank account, separate, segregated in a AAA rated bank or better, in a publicly held bank that we can monitor. We have a treasury team that's specifically there just to monitor the exchange funds. So for us, that's how we practice our exchange, you know, our, our exchange protocol. None of the funds are ever commingled. None of the funds have any risk to principal because they're not invested in the stock market or in a mutual fund or a money market account. So for us, you know, we get a competitive rate of interest on the funds. Um, and that's how we, again, would differ. But for me, I tell people we're protecting the principal balance. That's what we're protecting. We're not out there trying to find the best interest rate for your funds or your high yield, whatever, because the exchange is a short-term you know, short endeavor, six months at the most. And really the average life in exchange, and it's about 60 days, right? That's the average life of any 1031. Mm -hmm. Most people are finding that property, getting it closed relatively quick, relatively quick very few people are going the distance and closing on day 179. So again, for us, the interest is less of a component, but it's more about the protection of the principal. Critically important. Absolutely. And we, we mentioned the word receipt. What kind of documentation or receipt do you provide and what should be expected? Yeah. In an exchange, um, there has to be certain paperwork that basically provides what we call an assignment or a substitution of the qualified intermediary. Mm -hmm. So the QI, that's what we are, the qualified intermediary oh, actually right. assigns into the transaction. On the relinquished property, we basically step into the shoes of the seller. Mm -hmm. And on the replacement property, we in essence step into the shoes as the buyer. And that's done primarily to provide or restrict the client from having any constructive receipt of the funds. And yeah, they can't One of the nuances with 1031 is that the client can't touch the money. Right. And the exchange company provides that barrier, that buffer to protect them from having any receipt of the funds. So we step into the shoes, we do an assignment of the, of the escrow or the closing on the relinquished property and provide instructions to the closing agent that says, when you close, the funds come to us and we hold on to them. You're gonna wire the money directly to us. Do not under any circumstances wire the money to the, to the client. That would invalidate their exchange, they'd have to construct a receipt and they'd end up paying capital gains tax. On the replacement property- Can we property, repeat that again? Yes, <laughs> because Once that client... is probably again another big takeaway. After Agreed. closing, you cannot, you cannot, as the seller, take possession of those funds from the title company. It right. has to go immediately to the QI, the intermediate, the intermediary, uh, the fiduciary that's going to take the funds for you. The title company has to wire the funds or get the funds to them. To hold on to. That's right. And it's also critical to mention too, Anne, if you closed yesterday and mm -hmm. forgot to set up your exchange, it's too late. Even if you haven't touched the money, even if escrow or title or the closing agent hasn't dispersed funds to you yet, you still have what we refer to as constructive receipt of the funds. Constructive receipt means either control or direction of the funds. And if there's no assignment in place, if there's no substitution of the qualified intermediary that was dated on or before the day of closing, then it's then it's just a sale, right? Our documentation, our presence into this transaction creates that buffer. It creates that 
now exchange as opposed to just a normal sale. So yeah, hugely important that the exchange Critical. is set up and in place before the closing occurs. Critically, critically important. Again, start your start your due diligence before you even list your properties. Have every, your ducks in a row. Identify right. what you want to do. So I think everyone's starting to hear the theme here: preparedness, Prepare. preparedness, yes. preparedness. Right. Um, and I hopeful. Um, that by the end of this, everyone is better versed to be able to um, grow their wealth. So how, again, I, I tell us what the requirements in selecting the right fiduciary and picking the right QI, qualified intermediary, what should we look for? Yeah, I think you look for, you know, who is doing that, right? Who is your exchange company? How are they back? What is their financial strength? What kind of service do they offer, right? I mean, again, I would say, you know, we're full service, right? I mean, if you want us to open an exchange, you're going to talk to somebody and you're going to call my office. You're going to speak to me or someone on my team. I've got senior people that have been doing exchanges for, you know, 10 plus years, 20 plus years, some of them. So first and foremost, we're going to provide customer service and, you know, do like what I would call a little consult call. A little upfront call to kind of walk you through the steps of the exchange and how it works and manage your expectations. What is your role as the exchanger, the investor for the next 180 days? Because we never want to assume that you know and you've done a dozen of these before in your lifetime. Maybe this is your first exchange and we want to know that. So number one, look for customer service. Number two, like I said, look for who's backing these assets? Who's backing the funds? How are the monies invested? Are they invested? Where are the monies going? What banks do you deposit these funds in? Those are the three or four questions I would for sure ask. As well as, yeah, and, and again, you guys open individual accounts in their name and they're not commingled with other recipients' funds. That's right. Yeah, separate and segregated critic. bank accounts. Correct. Yes, mm -hmm. critically important. Yeah. Um, and what were the other elements that we should be looking for? Yeah, what type of customer service that we offer? I mean, again, we are very proactive with our customer service, right? We provide documentation and notification to the clients. We notify them of their 45-day deadline, their 180-day deadline. We mm -hmm. provide them with reminder calls. Uh, hey, Mr. Jones, your 45-day deadline is, you know, seven days away. We haven't received your identification. You know, please let us know if you're planning on identifying. Hey, Mrs. Smith, your 180 day is two weeks away. Are you closing on any of these identified replacement properties? So we're touching our clients four, five, six, seven, eight, ten times during the 180-day exchange process because that's how we operate, right? We provide that, you know, kind of upfront and you know, proactive approach to customer service. Yeah, as well as uh, the ENO, I think some sort of insurance that they should have in place, right? Yeah, we have a fidelity bond, we have an air and emissions bond, and you know, without you know getting too much in the details here, and those to me are pieces of paper that have fancy words right. on them. You know, in an exchange transaction, um, the money needs to be available within six months, right? If there's some kind of default of the exchange company or fraud that occurs in the exchange company. An Aaron emissions bond or Fidelity bond is not going to help you today. You need your money today. And that's how First American differs. I mean, there have been some, you know, highly publicized cases of exchange companies that have, you know, in essence, run off of the funds, yeah. you know, and maybe six, eight, 10 years later, the insurance paid a nickel on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar doesn't help you in your exchange process, right? The exchange life is 180 days. And if your Aaron emissions bond is going to pay you in that period of time, great, but we know better. You know, by the time things settle, it's years down the road. So, you know, for us, First American is different in that regard. We provide a guarantee of the funds. 
The money's backed by the title insurance company. The funds are placed in segregated bank accounts. They're never commingled. And again, we don't invest them, right? We put them in a savings account. Yeah. They're going to earn a nominal rate of interest or a competitive rate of interest uh, by today's exchange company standards. So we didn't even talk about it. It's, I'm always so impressed at how little um, the charges are for the, to put together, uh, you know, something that saves clients thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions, right? Depending on sure. the asset. Talk to us about if, what the typical fee might be for an exchange. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'll speak in generalities because oh. again, I think, you know, you have some regional differences with fee structures, but let's, uh, you know, on the low side, we see fees 800 to a thousand dollars for a transaction. That's let's call it a million dollars or less, mm -hmm. maybe a million to 5 million, 1200 to 1700 $1,500 is what we would charge. Um, over $5 million, maybe you see a little bit higher of a fee depending on you know, what region you're located in, the complexity of the deal. But I, I'll, I can only speak to First American. Most of our offices have kind of standard you know, flat fee structures. Now, if you're gonna sell a $10 million property and buy you know, 12 replacement properties, there might be some nominal fees for you know, the, the additional replacement properties, but it's really just to cover you know, kind of cost for wire fees and dock prep and things like that. Um, but yeah, they're really, and at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're really low and they're really kind of, you know, you know, reasonable fees for the service yeah. that we provide. They are, they are. And again, anything to, to defer those taxes down the line, build wealth, wealth building, wealth preservation. Uh, it's been an incredibly informative topic. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us, Anthony? No, I, I really appreciate you giving me the platform here to speak about this. I mean, it's something that I've been doing for a long time, and I still really enjoy talking about exchange transactions and, and really helping the customer achieve their, you know, their financial goal in this area. Yeah. And I, like I said, I, I just enjoy dealing with customers and kind of strategizing with them and helping them and, you know, showing them different avenues that they have to, to look for or look down for a 1031 process. Building generational wealth, no better way than to exercise a 1031 exchange for your investment property. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in. I know there were many, many layers to this onion, but we are here to answer your questions. Both Anthony's contact details will be under our show notes along with my own. Uh, we are always here to guide you, help you and answer your questions and helping you grow wealth with your uh, buy and selling side of, of real estate and uh, personal assets. So as the downsizing coach, I am signing out and I can't thank you any more, Anthony. Thank you so much My for pleasure. being here with yeah. us and hope thank to you. have you back again. Thank you. Great, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining Ann Nori, the downsizing coach and tuning into Downsizing Your Home and Life radio show. It would mean the world to us if you subscribe to our show so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Please share our show with friends who may also be considering the downsizing journey and leave us a rating and review so that we know how well we're doing. For more resources, visit thedownsizingcoach.com. Wishing you great success in planning your downsizing journey and taking the steps to living your best life. We look forward to greeting you during our next show.